This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, well, uh, today's like when Zoe Deschanel shows up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine because it is a crossover episode, baby. We have with us the host of the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast, founder of the Jewish Coffeehouse Podcast Network, the one and only Scott Kahn. And I want to use this episode to at least partially address one of the most common questions I get from listeners to this podcast, which is about how the kind of background I come from, I'm an Orthodox Jew, informs the way that I look at the kinds of things that we're passionate about here in the Good Faith Fam, the Bible, religious life in America, building community. So to do that, I brought on a brilliant friend who's devoted his podcasting career to thinking about the Orthodox Jewish community from the inside, who can help me explain a bit what this is all about, what we might have to teach the wider society, and perhaps what we can in turn learn from the wider society. He's the host of the amazing, as I said, Orthodox Conundrum podcast. He's Scott Kahn. Scott, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Ari. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So what's your go-to when someone outside the, the Jewish community asks you what it means to be an Orthodox Jew? Like, I feel like we all have a go-to and we're always unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the number one go-to, if they want literature, I'd say, well, look at Rabbi Sachs or look at somebody you know very well, Rabbi Lamb. Um, I think that those are two classic go-tos simply because, aside from their erudition and brilliance, they present an Orthodox Judaism, which I think is comprehensible outside of the boundaries of our community. The nature of the way they describe it is completely authentic. It's coming from within. It's an insider's view because it's real. It's based on the authentic sources that we have. But at the same time, they express it in such a way that it can be appreciated accurately, I think, by almost anybody who has a deep intellect and a care to understand how things work. And I think it's interesting because I've had that, that instinct myself, and I've tried to come up with better versions of it, but it is kind of a gut instinct. When somebody asks me, what does it mean to be an Orthodox Jew or Jewish at all? My go-to is to like give them homework, like give them a book, you know? Right. <laughs> and I feel like that, that says something interesting and also important about our community, which is we're very textual. Right. And I think that's kind of counterintuitive, right? So I've, I've had the experience before where I'd, you know, I'd ask a friend from another you know, tradition, whether it's, you know, someone, whether it's Pentecostal, someone who's Catholic or whatever it is. So I'll usually get, you know, what does it mean to be part of your community? And I'll usually get an experiential answer. When you ask someone from our community, you get reading. I'm curious, what do you think that says about our community? Well, if I want to be brutally honest about it, I think it says something very good and something which might not be so good. Let's unpack both from a good perspective, from something which is a positive overall. It's nice that we have sources on which we rely because if something's purely experiential, then the person I'm asking might have a vastly different experience from a different, equally valid source that says he might say something completely different. When you point to a text, you can say all members of Group X, at least on some level, can point to this text. So there's a commonality in that sense. It also describes something in another positive sense, a very intellectual approach that may be positive or negative for some people. I think it's a positive that is really based on thinking about it. It's not just something which I decided this morning. It's something which there are sources that go back thousands of years, and we're progressing within a tradition which has believed these same ideas, more or less, for a very long time. So you're going to get a very deep and authentic, genuine answer. 
On the other hand, Ari, I think there really is a lack often in Orthodox Judaism today. And it's something which I'd like to address on some level on my podcast. Sometimes I do a bit, but I'd like to do it some more. That that experiential is sometimes downplayed. There are those who are working in it in the neo-Hasidic movement, for example. They're trying to push the experiential. I still think, though, that we're so used to the textual approach that experiencing God directly, however that is defined by an individual, sometimes might be lacking in our community. I recently spoke with somebody who told me about you know, the numbers of people who find prayer meaningful within orthodoxy. If you're an Orthodox Jew, the answer should be 100% of people find it meaningful, but it's nowhere near that. People find prayer very difficult. Some, of course, find it deeply moving. I hope that I myself find it deeply moving, an important part of what we call avodat Hashem, worship of God. But there are many people who, they do it because it's an obligation, but that experience of God in the day-to-day, I think they don't find it as much as they probably would like to. And I think, at least from my anecdotal experience, my own talking to people, it's something which is lacking in the Orthodox community, and I wish we had more of that. One of the things that strikes me is that you're right. It seems to me that there's kind of like an experiential gap that we have, at least in in large swaths of the Orthodox community, where we're very focused on doing the right thing, on, on behaving the right way. But that kind of visceral element sometimes seems hard to capture or what I think in the wider parlance you might call like uh, spirituality, right? To use a term that doesn't mean anything. Right, right, exactly. But like one thing I, I find that I, I don't relate to at all in pop culture, and it pains me and saddens me that I don't, is there's this great kind of trope, you know, in like you see it in Scrubs. Like, I've honestly, you've seen it on Family Feud, where people who are coming kind of from like, like a Pentecostal tradition or something with that kind of influence, there's this notion like at least in the christian tradition of like the holy spirit like speaking to you or and like you have these people who just look so passionate and excited and you know feeling the spirit and dancing and getting all excited and so forth and it's the kind of thing i'm like i do not relate to this even slightly perhaps in parts of the hasidish world they you know you might like i remember walking to breslover stiebel in israel where it was just people were were dancing and these were like not like punks with Nachman yarmulkes, you know, for 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 the listeners, this these were sort of like people, hardcore Hasidim, uh, with the hat, furry hats, and everything. But there was a lot of dancing, so there might kind of be more overlap there. But I kind of relate to a very staid, solemn, decorous service. It's not as stuffy as you would find, like in a you know, in like a Curb Your Enthusiasm scene where, you know, it's real where the services are just a backdrop for Richard Lewis and Larry David to yell at each other. Right. You know, people are into it. Like people are actually definitely into it for sure. But there isn't that kind of like excitement. And why is that? You know, it's hard to say, like, why isn't there excitement? I definitely agree with you. If we see somebody in one of our local synagogues, which are mine isn't a Breslov synagogue, I'm assuming based on what you said, yours isn't either. If we see someone with that level of excitement, we probably say, oh, he must be newly religious because anyone who's been religious for a long time isn't up there dancing and jumping around. It's not part of it. And in fact, I'll go even further, even in Jewish law, for example, on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to technically dance on the Sabbath because right. we're afraid that someone will do various things that will violate the laws of the Sabbath. You're not allowed to use musical instruments. You're not allowed to jump up and down in that way. So it's actually built into the system. It's such a strong legal tradition. And I love the legal tradition, what we call halakha, the way of Jewish law. I think it's fantastic. That doesn't mean, though, that it doesn't have consequences, such as perhaps tamping down and lessening the natural enthusiasm. 
also part of it is our liturgy. I actually produce a podcast for two people. One's a pastor and one's a rabbi. And they talk about differences between uh, something you would relate to. It's called the Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. But they talk about the differences in the liturgy. And at least in this particular pastor's tradition, liturgy isn't such a big thing. You make a prayer spontaneously. You say what you're thinking. On the other hand, we say the same words three times a day, 365 days a year, and or at least minus the Sabbath, where we say the same thing 52 times a year. And the other days, we say the same thing over and over again. And in so doing, we get so used to the words, I think that it has, a, once again, a plus side and a negative side. On the plus side, it means that if you say something repeatedly, you can go much deeper in. It can almost be a form of meditation because you immediately get into that space. This isn't something new. This is something which, if you're trained in that way, that you're, you have this meditative mindset, you can go deep in, then all of a sudden, you can immediately immediately be in the same space. There's also an idea of being in the same spot every day in the same synagogue. If you go in that same spot, the same time, the same words, you can immediately enter that meditative space in a way which can't be done probably with something spontaneous. On the other hand, the good majority of people, I would venture to guess, aren't in that meditative space, and therefore they're just saying words by rote. So in that sense, doing something every single day the same way can lead to depth, but it can also lead to shallowness if you have the opposite way of looking at it. If you're looking at it just as the words I've got to say to be yotse my obligation to fulfill the thing that God wants me to do. So it might be something like that. Why? What do you think the reason is? Why do you think that we don't have that enthusiasm? Well, here would be my strongest defense of saying the same thing every single day to the point where it's routine and, and rote. Not that it being becoming routine and rote is a good thing, but my strongest defense of the system, which I genuinely think is, is such an advantage, it almost outweighs everything else, is... By saying the same thing every single day, every single month turns into every single year, and every single year turns into every single generation, and every single generation turns into memory. And what that means is that when I walk into, like this morning, you know, got up at seven to go a couple houses down, you know, to the daily prayer service, and I was exhausted because I'd stayed up late last night fooling around on Twitter, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I had no energy. But it did strike me, especially and, and particularly because I was preparing for this conversation, that the words that I was saying were exactly the same words that my grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents, going all the way back through some of the most significant moments in history, all said. And they all said the exact same words I was saying. And what that meant is that something actually quite comforting, which is that even though I had no energy this morning and I probably brought very, very little to the prayer this morning, I didn't have to bring everything because I had generations of parents, grandparents, great, 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 great grandparents going all the way back into antiquity who had already brought their own stories to it. So it kind of, it wasn't just me. I wasn't alone. That would be my strongest defense of it. What do you think of that? That's a beautiful idea. I like that a lot. That's really nice. And Certainly, that idea is a fundamental idea within Orthodox Judaism, that we're merely players on a temporary stage. There are those who are going to come after us, and we're not going to be here anymore. There are plenty of those who came before us, long before we were even in anybody's thought. And we're all playing our part for a limited amount of time. And then someone else will play the same role in his or her own unique way, using the same script, but putting their own spin on it based on their own thought process, their own emotions, what they do to it. So I think that's a beautiful idea. I will say in terms of my own prayer service this morning, I also woke up this morning <laughs> and I was tired, you know, it was one of those days. 
at the same time, when I was, say, 20 years old and I would go to a regular daily prayer service, I maybe I'm wrong for saying this. I don't think that my prayer was as deep as it is now. That memory that you speak about is also my own personal memory. The fact that not only my grandparents said these words, but I said these words 40 years ago. I said these words 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and I'm still saying them now. I'm not going to claim that I'm a meditative person in any way. I wish I were, but I'm not. But at the same time, no matter how you're feeling, when you start saying those words, you immediately get into that zone, at least on some level, because it puts you right there. It's like Ari, for example, the most obvious case is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the the high holidays. No matter whether you're ready for them or not, when you hear that first tune at that first service that begins the high holidays, the Slichot service, the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah, immediately, boom, oh, we're here. It's the new year. It puts you into that zone. So on a lesser level, but still true, whenever I say those words to some degree, you're immediately zoned in in a way that that memory of your own life and everything that I've prayed for over the past years of my life, I'm 51 years old, everything that I've prayed for, obviously I'm not thinking about all that, but sometimes it'll come in, I'll remember this. Even when I close my eyes, I'll think about another time that I was saying these words in a spot that I was, whether it was by the Western Wall or in Boston, Massachusetts or anywhere else. And it kind of gives that comfort, but also adds a layer of depth to the words that I'm saying, because they're not new. They're old, old not only for the Jewish people, but for me personally. I had this experience recently that relates to kind of the larger sociological question of the space that we inhabit. It was the the Yeshiva University Maccabees, the Yeshiva University basketball team, were on this incredible winning streak, and uh, they were about to play their toughest matchup yet, which I I do not want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeshiva University versus Illinois Wesleyan, uh, which is an excellent, excellent uh, basketball school, excellent school in general. The streak did not survive. The streak did not survive. Hopefully it will it will rekindle, but it did not survive. In the aftermath of that interview, a wonderful, wonderful man who's kind of a Division Three basketball uh, savant by the name of Bob Quillman had me on his uh, podcast. And one of the questions that he asked me that, that, full disclosure, I wasn't prepared for was, what does it mean to be an Orthodox Jew? Like, what is Orthodox Judaism? And I actually had this moment where I sort of froze up a little bit because I was torn. The normal answer that I would give to that is I'd explain what I believe. But for those of us kind of from inside the community, we know how diverse it is and how much variety you can find within the different streams of Orthodox Judaism that aren't just reducible to sort of different tastes or different foods or different vocabulary, but actually relate to real interesting differences. And I was kind of torn between, you know, when when someone from outside the community asked me about it. I was torn between sort of explaining what I believe and having that stand in for, you know, not for Orthodox Judaism, but sort of saying, here's what I as a product, let's say, of Yeshiva University under, you know, believe versus saying, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't want an, someone to get the impression that our differences are larger than our than our unifying factors. And so I kind of defaulted to saying here are kind of like the the common denominators for uh, for Orthodox Judaism. And I got like one of two reactions. I would either get I'm so glad that you didn't get into the differences because they aren't as important as the similarities. And the other one I got was how come you didn't go into the differences? Like you're making it seem like we're all the same. So my question to you would be what would be sort of the common denominator version you give? And then what would be the way that you'd explain the differences in a productive way? That's a really good question. Speaking of not being prepared for a question, right? That's why I gave you a nice long buildup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole time I was formulating my answer that entire time. Thank you. I appreciate it. My basic answer would be at the beginning, 
to do the cheap way out. I don't mean because it's a cheap way out, but to say the best thing to do is to look at the 13 principles articulated by Maimonides, not because, as Professor Mark Shapiro from Scranton has shown, everyone completely agrees with them, absolutely, but that seems to be the simplest basic formulation of what Orthodox Jews believe and something which non-Orthodox Jews probably wouldn't accept all of them in the same way. So if you want to say what do Orthodox Jews believe, this is probably the best formulation of that. I would then qualify that by saying, that even though on the surface, almost all Orthodox Jews will believe this, there are two aspects which that ignores. Aspect number one is that the variety, that doesn't say very much, you know, saying that the Torah is from heaven, that's a very, very big statement that can be understood in so many different ways and is understood in so many different ways, or the concept of the Messiah, or the concept of the resurrection of the dead, or even the concept of prophecy, or for example, to whom we're allowed to pray. Not only are there controversies about what these mean within understanding that these are broadly all certain principles that everyone accepts, there's so many different ways of understanding them, but also in another element, I think that this is the other side of it. I think that there's a part of Orthodox Judaism that might be not served well by an an overemphasis on dogmatism. Not because I have a question about the dogmas per se. That's not what I'm trying to say over here. I don't want to enter into heretical territory. That's not what I believe. But even though these dogmas are widely accepted— I think they can at times, at times, and this is going to be a controversial statement for Orthodox Jews, I think they can at times be counterproductive by setting up barriers that don't allow other people in. They're setting up barriers that if I can't fully accept that, am I therefore out of the community when maybe there's a way to bring people in rather than by trying to shut people out? I think often having a dogma or a doctrine that if someone has to accept it, then this is the only way of defining the community. If you're not willing to accept everything in that group, then in that case, well, you may as well not be part of the community. And I don't think that's where we're best served nowadays. I'll quote your, your grandfather, Rav Lam, in his incredible essay, Faith and Doubt, which had a tremendous impact on me, in that he talks about the difference between denial and doubt. And that's one element of trying to get towards um, maybe moving beyond doctrine or dogma, saying that not rejecting them, but someone who isn't sure about them, saying they're no longer part of the community is very, very different. Now, whether Maimonides himself would have accepted that is a different question. I'm not so sure. He might have said one needs to intellectually assert them and actually understand what they mean. But in terms of how we are nowadays, in terms of the way the Jewish community is formulated, in terms of the Orthodox community, I think that maybe we should move away from dogmatism a little bit and try to be more welcoming and find ways to let people in, saying, well, you don't fully accept this, but maybe you can accept part of it. Maybe you could, maybe there's something about it which you can accept. Maybe we can define it more broadly in a way that will bring you in so that we're not setting up those barriers. I realize I'm kind of going off in a different direction from what you asked me, but that's sort of where that question led me. No, but it's interesting because what I usually say when people ask me, like, what do Orthodox Jews believe? So you can sign me up for all of the principles of faith. Sign me up. But I do think that it's an unhelpful way I find of explaining what we are because of the, I'd give the following analogy. It's like if my, when my wife asked me to take out the garbage, right? Cause she's, she's going to sleep. Make sure you take out the garbage. So if I said, I believe with a hundred percent certainty, with total pure faith that my wife asked me to bring out the garbage and that I have a responsibility to bring it out, and then I just went to sleep, it would be a meaningless statement, right? Like the actual, the thing that she's interested in is me bringing the garbage out. Right? Right. So, so Which you didn't do. <laughs> which I did it right, which, oh, sh- <laughs> she, she listens to the podcast. So no. <laughs> don't blow up my spot. So I think people find sometimes unusual, sometimes off-putting, but I think most of the time attractive or at least very interesting about the Orthodox Jewish community 
is all of the things that we do. Because we do, and when you start to catalog it, we just do an enormous number of things that could either be weird or it could be interesting or both. And mm-hmm. the, the best example I, I have is I remember when, when my wife was in dental school, we had some of her colleagues, none of whom were Jewish, or one, one or two of whom were Jewish, but most of them were not, over for a Shabbat meal because they asked, they were interested, and we were down for it. And I remember thinking to myself, like I was, I was like super, you know, young at the time. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna explain. I'm gonna be so good at this. I'm gonna explain every single thing that we do. And it was right before. So for for those who are listening, so what happens on? Uh, I'm probably gonna make the same mistake now. But what happens is like we drink a cup of grape juice and we make a blessing on that cup that sanctifies the Sabbath. And then broadly speaking, what we do next is we eat a piece of bread to signal that the meal has begun. And that's, you know, it's based on all sorts of verses in the Bible that position bread as kind of the staple food. And it's our signal of our reliance on God and so on and so forth. By the way, you realize, Ari, that by saying we drink a cup of wine or grape juice to sanctify the Sabbath, that phrase to sanctify the Sabbath, that itself requires hours of explanation. What does that even mean? That's exactly where I was going. So (laughs) I start to explain all of that and uh, that's why I said I, th- I knew I was going to make the same mistake and then there are like a billion jillion things that we all took for granted that we pour the wine into this like goblet right we then wash our hands nobody talks after you wash your hands there's salt on the table we pour salt on the bread like what is happening like a jillion weird things that are happening and if you try to explain every single one of them this meal is going to take seven hours but what it speaks to I think is the I think one of the unique strengths we have as a community is is that our lives are really thick, right? In other words, they are interwoven at so many stages with touch points to the tradition. It's not something you even can opt out of if you wanted to. There's just too much there. And so if you had to communicate that kind of richness to someone who's not familiar with it, where would you even start? And what is the, maybe the disadvantages, but also what are the advantages of having that kind of thickness, you know, even if you're not Jewish, right? Like if you're just building like, uh, if you're building any sort of intentional community in the United States, let's say, like what are the pros and cons? Well, it's really hard for me to say what the pros would be in a different community. I can try. I can mention what I think some of the pros are within the Jewish community, within the Orthodox community, at least to start. And certainly to me, uh, without getting too highfalutin about it, but to me, the rituals that we do, and I mentioned there are many things that are not rituals per se, but let's talk about the rituals. I believe that the rituals are the vehicle through which we can experience the presence of God. It does require some mindfulness. It does require paying attention to it. But before we talked about doctrine, we talked about dogma, we talked about experience, I think they all come together in action. When we have our actions and we pour that cup on Friday night and sanctify the Sabbath, sitting down with our family, to me, God is present at the table as well. And I think that's should I say the point? But at least it's part of the point. You know, anytime a Jew says, this is the reason, you know you're in trouble. So I'm not going to say that's the only <laughs> point, but it certainly seems to be a big part of it, that we're inviting God into our lives. Belief isn't only something which is intellectual. Belief in Orthodox Judaism is something you do. You act your belief. On some ways, if someone were to ask, you know, does belief result as a result of the commandments that we do, or is belief the foundation of them? The answer is yes, it's both. We begin with a level of belief and act in accordance with that, but those actions in turn strengthen that belief and create that belief on a deeper level. That belief in what? In that relationship with God as he's been revealed to the Jewish people throughout history. To me, that's the most compelling reason that I would ever tell anybody why these actions mean something to me. It could very well be that in a different community, they could also experience the presence of God through what they do. I can't speak for that because that's not my community, but I know that what we call the Shekhinah, which means God's indwelling in the world, 
It's God's experience, the experience of God, our experience of God through physical action. We believe in an incorporeal God. God is not physical. But by doing physical things, we're able to experience his presence in an immediate way. That's at least what I would answer. How would you characterize the value add of Jewish ways of studying the word of God for a wider public. What I mean by that is obviously different religious communities study different things, right? So in the Jewish community, we're not studying the gospels, right? In the, you know, in the Christian community, there's probably more of a focus on the Bible in general than there is in the, in the Jewish community. We're focused on other sorts of sacred texts as well. In the Catholic community, there's a whole kind of systematic theological tradition that you don't have outside, mostly outside of the Catholic tradition, even if you have echoes of it in, in some other places in the Lutheran community and, you know, some of the heights of the evangelical intellectual community. But broadly speaking, if you're in sort of a biblical tradition, not from an interfaith perspective, but if you're from a biblical tradition so that at the practical or tactical level, what you have is a bunch of stories. You have a bunch of commandments given by a particular God about how you should live your life and about how your family and your community and maybe others should live their lives. And we, in turn, feel some responsibility or compulsion to study those commands and words and stories and so forth. So not at a theological level, just at like a tactical, strategic level. What's the value add that Jewish education brings to that endeavor? My initial reaction, Ari, would be the concept of Midrash, of explicating the text in a non- literal way or perhaps a non-obvious way is something which can be brought into many different areas of life, both study and interpersonal relations. You talk about the mitzvot and the various things that we do. Well, if somebody were to read the Bible, open a Bible in any language and read it straight through and then compare it to the way the Jews act, there would be vast differences. The most obvious case for, for Jews is probably the case of an eye for an eye, which the Talmud says very clearly is not the law. It means something else. It doesn't mean not that. It's just interpreted to mean something which is quite different, monetary compensation. How that fits with the reading, it's not saying that the reading is wrong. The reading was given to us by God. However, the way that we read it is such that it actually has a meaning that is not obvious on the surface. The idea of contextual reading along with non-obvious reading, understanding that there are different layers to text, the text can have multiple meanings, while at the same time, that doesn't mean that it was just a nebulous mass. There is some objective reality there, but can be read in multiple ways. The phrase that in the Talmud about that is, these and these are both the words of the living God. There are multiple interpretations that can even contradict, and yet at the same time, they can both be true. I think that's a very important idea that can be transmitted into our personal relations. If I am going to see somebody and he says something which I don't like, if I want to judge him favorably, does that mean I'm just lying to myself? Or am I saying, no, people are complicated. What he said can be understood in multiple ways. And therefore, it's not that I'm pretending he said something he didn't say, I'm realizing that people are deep and there are many things going on. And if somebody said something or did something in a way that I don't appreciate, maybe there's more there than meets the eye and I can see the other aspect of it the same way that an eye for an eye doesn't always mean literally an eye for an eye. The way that I describe this in certain classes I've given, to how to understand that things that contradict can be both true, while at the same time, it's not a free-for-all. I've compared it to music. Whether we want to use classical music or we want to use pop music, how about this? Um, Beatles, right? 
with a little help from my friends, an amazing tune, right? Ringo Starr sings it written by John Lennon, Paul McCartney. Fantastic. Then there's Joe Cocker's version. Joe Cocker's version is, for those who don't know, it's the beginning of The Wonder Years, or at least, I don't know if the new one, the old one, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Another beautiful, fantastic, and frankly, I think far better song. It's a far better version. I, that's obviously a subjective opinion. They're both playing the same notes. They're both saying the same lyrics, but they sound like two completely different songs. Now, if you're going to do freeform jazz or improvising, that's something different. And that's, there's a place for that, too, where you're not tied to the text. But if you're going to play the same notes, but you can play them with your own interpretation of that, you can have vastly different musical scores that all come from the same place. That's how I understand these and these are both the words of the living God. I'll give you one more example from the classical world. I was once in Venice. I was once in Venice. One time I was in Venice. But I was there with my wife. We actually went to go see a concert. We wanted to hear Vivaldi. So we heard the Four Seasons, you know, one of the most famous pieces of music ever written. We heard the Four Seasons. And my personal favorite is the first movement of Winter. And when they came to Winter, I kept telling my wife, my wife's name is Elise. I said, Elise, listen, wait, wait till you hear the bass, you know, when you hear the, the, the person play the bass in the cello, it's fantastic. Because I have a CD where Yitzhak Perlman was playing with the Israeli Philharmonic, and the bass there was just, there was a moment there which just, it gave me chills. I loved it. And when they got to it, it didn't sound anything like it. They didn't have that, <laughs> that powerful, deep bass in the cello. It was the right music. They emphasized, the conductor emphasized a different aspect of it. It was the same piece of music, but for me, it could have been a different piece of music. That's how I understand these and these are both true, but there's an element of interpretation. One's right for you and one's right for me, but they're both based on the same piece of music. They're playing the same notes. That's such a beautiful observation. And you know what it reminds me of is sort of an additional element, which is one thing that you run into in Jewish ways of interpreting the Bible is what I think seems at first like a defect, which is, but I think is in fact a strength. I always find it fun and enlightening and, and enriching to explain this to, to friends of mine who are not Jewish, particularly, you know, those who come from a Christian tradition or some or some tradition where they're deeply engaged with the words of the Bible. And that is people who are raised sort of in an Orthodox Jewish community with like an, a traditional Orthodox Jewish education have like no idea what's happening in the Bible. It's not because they don't know the contents. It's just they don't know what goes where. And what I mean by that is for just to give a classic example, <laughs> I said growing up, most of us, like people who grew up like me, we all thought that there was a story in the Bible in the beginning of Genesis where Abraham is thrown by Nimrod, who's the sort of the Babylonian king who appears also in the beginning of Genesis. In like two lines. Right. Does not have a speaking role. We thought that there's a scene where Nimrod throws Abraham into a fiery furnace and Abraham emerges from the fire unscathed. Now, that story is not in the book of Genesis. It's not, in fact, it's not anywhere in the Bible. This story of Abraham surviving finder is not anywhere in the Bible. And I find when you kind of tell that to people out of context, it's like, what, what does that even mean? Right? <laughs> what the heck does that mean? And it almost seems like, oh, so wait, the Jews like, do you guys like not know what's in the Bible? Like what's happening? Now the answer is no, of course we know what's in the Bible. Why do People who were raised like like we were think that that was a story in Genesis. The reason is because there's a rabbinic tradition that that happened. Where did the rabbis get that from? Did they? It's an, and it's a very ancient tradition, centuries. It's like two thousand years old. Where did they get that from? They just made it up. No. What they were doing is something that moderns would call intertextuality, which is they were reading two texts in light of each other. There is a story in the Bible about somebody being thrown into a furnace. It's just from the book of Daniel. It's it's uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You know, Han I, I never know how to pronounce these names in, in English. <laughs> Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, where the Babylonian king throws them into a fiery furnace, and it's sort of a test of faith for them. 
what the rabbis did is they took that story and they transposed it onto the story of Abraham. Why would they do that? Right? Why would they say that this happened to Abraham? The reason is because they're actually trying to address a classic question in the biblical text, which is why does God choose Abraham? Because nowhere in the book of Genesis or anywhere else in the entire Bible does God ever explain why he chose Abraham, which is the most important question in the entire Bible. There's no answer to it. So the rabbis spend, and and biblical commentators throughout the ages have spent hours and hours, days and days, months, months, years and years trying to figure out the answer to that question. Now, the answer is there is no answer, or at least we don't know the answer. And that's part of the, the wonder full, inspiring mystery of it all. But one way that the rabbis approach the question is to say, well, let's find another story in the Bible where people are demonstrating belief in God and see if we can use that story to explain what's going on in the story of Abraham. So the story of Abraham is read creatively by the rabbis in light of the book of Daniel. First of all, because of the connection between King of Babylon, King of Babylon, Nimrod and and the King of Babylon and Daniel, but also because what it does is it shows that the rabbis are communicating in this sort of very vivid narrative kind of legendary literary way, what they think of Abraham. And what they think of Abraham is they're saying, look at the characters in Daniel. What made them special is they were countercultural. They were willing to walk into a situation which everybody accepted one set of norms and expected everybody to conform to them because they were right and good and they gave you access to power. And these people, because of their convictions, rejected them and they were punished for it. And because they held fast to their values, even in the face of immense cultural pressure to do otherwise, that's what made them great. And Abraham was the same way. Abraham emerges into this Mesopotamian world and he rejects the tempting, easy, but soul-corrupting principles of Bronze Age paganism. And he does so because he knows there's something more important out there and he's willing to put his entire destiny and the fate of his entire family on the line for that. Now, none of our kids know that that's what's happening there, right? Like when our (laughs) kids learn that, they don't know that that's happened. Like something's been lost in translation. However... I think what happens is that because we have like this tradition that you identified, the the tradition of Midrash, right? The tradition of this, these kind of like creative, non-literal, but still in some ways literal, definitely meaningful and real and certainly real readings because of that tradition. I think we think in a very thick and interesting way about how all the different parts of the Bible and the larger story connect to each other. First of all, I think that's a beautiful reading of explaining how our sages got that idea of Abraham putting those two stories together into intertextuality. I think there's an important point that you're making as well, which is people often ask about Midrash. I'm sure you've heard this question millions of times. Is it true? Is it true, this particular story that we hear about? And I sometimes tongue-in-cheek say, of course, true. Every Midrash is true. Oh, historically true? That, that's a very different question. I don't really care. And in fact, I say sort of, once again, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Right. That's the most boring version of true. Exactly. Right? <laughs> if the Midrash is only trying to tell us what historically happened, then that's the end. Why is it telling me this? Because that's what happened. Okay. And then you're done. Okay. If you actually want to deal with something with real ideas and engage with what they're trying to teach us and see how it can affect your lives, then truth here isn't talking about historical truth or the historical truth is kind of irrelevant. What actually matters is the message that they're teaching. And those are uniformly true in the Midrash. They're teaching beautiful ideas and how they can affect me. And whether or not Abraham was actually thrown into a fiery furnace and emerged unscathed by the King Nimrod, whether it happened or not, is really besides the point, kind of missing the point. It's like, I believe it could have happened and maybe it did, but like that's the least interesting part of the story. <laughs> right. That's that's really not the point. It's, right. it's, it's, maybe. Okay. I don't know. That's right. The story is not, they're not teaching us that because it happened. 
that might have happened or not, that they're teaching us because it's important that we learn something from that particular story. Right, exactly. In terms of the way you described Bible before, I have to say just one funny story. My very first year teaching was over 20 years ago, and there was a particular verse that I saw in a certain case, and I mentioned to my students, and they've been studying Talmud very, very seriously. And this is sort of the Jewish way of looking at the Bible and sometimes our lack of familiarity. And it was a verse which we say every day in prayer. It was one of the uh, Psalms we say at the end of the day. And I mentioned to my class, I said, who knows where this particular verse comes from? It wasn't in the context of prayer. So one guy raised his hand and he mentioned a folio of the Talmud. And I said, okay, that's true. <laughs> it comes from Masechah Brachot Daflam and I'm like, that's very correct. I actually meant it appears in Psalms, you know, Psalms 90 or whatever way. So... It's a, that's sometimes a, a problem that we have, that our knowledge of the Bible is seen filtered through the oral law. But I'm not sure it's a bad thing, because seeing it filtered that way helps us give it its assigned meaning. I think that's part of that Midrashic reading as well. The last question I have for you is the following. So I think one of the things that surprises folks who don't know anything about Judaism in general, and certainly about Orthodox Judaism, is that we're not out to convert people. And it sort of seems like a very counterintuitive thing. If you're in possession of, you know, truth with a capital T, which, you know, we believe that we are, shouldn't you want everybody to hold that truth? Shouldn't you want to spread that truth out to the wider world? And for some reason, we don't, or at least we appear not to. And the question is, why is that? What are you doing? Now, we could get into the question of why aren't we a conversionary religion? Why do, aren't we a missionary religion? You know, why don't we believe that everybody in the world should convert to Judaism? Because we do not believe that. And I find that's always an interest, an interesting and, and exciting conversation. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, whom you mentioned earlier, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom and one of the great expositors of Jewish tradition in the modern era, has written a lot of, of wonderful things about that. But suffice it to say, we're not a conversionary religion. Therefore, the question then becomes, well, if you're not converting people, so you must want to have nothing to do with anybody else. And that's sort of the other kind of stereotype, unhealthy stereotype about Jews in general and Orthodox Jews in particular, which is like we're very insular. We don't kind of care about anybody else. And that's also sort of a canard and it's not true. But one thing that I, I wish that we gave more explicit attention to, and I think in kind of the the contemporary age, particularly in America now, kind of with the modern state of Israel, we, we do give more attention to is what is it that we have to give to the world? Not just learn from the wider world, which is an important question too. We, you know, we can learn so much from the world around us. And that's a lot of what Jewish tradition is about, kind of learning to appreciate and grow from the beauty and the bounty of creation. But what do we have to give the rest of the world? So if, if I kind of had to put you on one foot and say, what are some helpful, useful, enriching things that people might be able to learn from our experience building, you know, this very thick and, and dedicated community, what might one or two of those things be? So there's both short-term answers and long-term answers. I'll say the long-term answer first, even though that's not so practical. I think ultimately our job as the Jewish people is to create a perfect society. It hasn't happened yet. I live in Israel. <laughs> I love living in Israel. I hope that Israel will one day be that society. We're not there yet, but you know, we're working on it, every individual in his or her own way. So ultimately, I think we're supposed to create a society that will demonstrate the principles of justice, of compassion, of love of welcoming, welcoming strangers as well as your own members of your own community. That society that we will ultimately create, and perhaps that's the definition of redemption, when that society is really ready to be unveiled as it really should be. Maybe that's what redemption is. I don't know. But when that society is ultimately revealed as it should be, that is our ultimate gift in the future. We're not there yet, though. In the interim, I still think there are some short-term answers that Judaism can give many people who are people of faith who are interested in relationship with God. Number one is the idea that it is not in heaven. The idea that God is not in heaven. The idea also that God's revelation is not in heaven. We say that human beings 
partner with God in bringing God down to the world in the way we spoke about before, Ari, through action, through our study, through our prayer. Our job isn't to ascend the heavens. Our job is not to go up that ladder. It's rather to help God, so to speak, to give him permission to come down that ladder, to come into our world. And that's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. The, the law is not in heaven. It's not across the sea, right? Exactly. So that idea that it belongs to us we are responsible for partnering with God in making the world everything that it should be by making his presence more apparent. I think that's a very important message. Another message that Judaism has to offer the world is what you alluded to before, the way that we read the Bible, the way that we read texts in general, seeing depth in it, as well as the fact that our creative impetus is part and parcel of our interpretation. We're not pretending, at least I don't think anyone's really pretending, that when we read the Bible creatively, that we're getting an objective meaning of what the original intent of the author was. There's a very well-known story in the Talmud that uh, two rabbis were arguing, and ultimately, even though a divine revelation indicated that Rabbi Eliezer was correct in his interpretation, it didn't matter because the people determine what the Bible means, and the coda of the story was even though this person was right and he was quote-unquote objectively right, they ruled like the other rabbi. And when a rabbi later on asked Elijah the prophet, again, using this midrashic imagination, what was it that God said when they ruled against God's own interpretation? The answer was, he laughed. God laughed and said, my children have defeated me in the, in the most positive way. We can do that. Not that we should defeat God, but we are working with God. We're not trying to find objective truth all the time. It's to find the truth that God is giving us to work with him in order to make the world a better place. Those are a few things I'd say offhand that, uh, that appeal to me that I think Judaism can offer the world. What do you say about that? How would you answer that question? The way I usually start is by saying Judaism's, I think, tactical, strategic advantage, but it's so much more than that. But even at just like the practical level, our advantage is being able to think in the longest time horizons. And it's because of this kind of ecosystem that we've created, which is so committed to family, to knowledge, which sees knowledge as being passed down from parent to child, and which sees teachers as representatives, as it were, of parents, or kind of like stand-ins for parents. So, you know, you preserve that metaphor. And which sees stories as generational rather than individual. Hmm. And what that allows us to do is make decisions on just a completely different time scale than most people are used to in the contemporary age. The best way to see that in practice is to compare kind of the two great foundations of Western civilization, the Greek foundation and the Hebrew foundation. In the Greek foundation, you have also sort of like myths and stories, you know, uh, tales that people tell, not comparable to sort of the what we have in the Hebrew tradition, but like schematically, at least, it, it seems the same. But what you have in the Greek tradition are heroes, and the heroes are individuals, and the main characters are, are sort of the, the protagonists are individual protagonists. You have Achilles, you have Heracles. Eventually in the Roman tradition, you get Romulus and Remus. You get various people whose achievements, whether they're heroic or tragic, are individual. So much so that, in fact, even on the tragic end, the our go-to reference for how the parent-child relationship works is like the Oedipus complex. Like we're relying on a story from the Greek church. It's about like one person's experience over the course of a lifetime. In the Hebrew tradition, 
you you don't have individual heroes where the point of the story is to see the hero's journey. Like you don't have a hero's journey in the Hebrew Bible, which is such an odd thing. Like nobody thinks about that. You do not have the hero's journey in the Hebrew Bible. It is entirely a product of the Greek tradition. You have people who are called to a responsibility, but ultimately Abraham, David, Gideon, like certainly once you get further into the book of Kings, like there's no protagonist. There's no individual heroic protagonist. There's a family. There's a tribe. There's a nation. There's a society. And what that does is it forces you to think on much longer, much harder, but also much more ambitious timescales. We, as the contemporary sort of 21st century, whether it's an American society or sort of a broader Western society, have an extraordinary challenge in thinking even two weeks ahead, let alone two years, let alone two decades, let alone two centuries ahead. And I think part of the reason is because we have been inaugurated through the tradition of liberal education in the best sense, because it is a wonderful tradition. But one of the things it does is it kind of puts so much focus on the self as the locus of meaning, whether it's through existentialism, whether it's through, you know, sort of pop culture, which kind of sees the individual story as sort of the height of what you can achieve, right? As like achieving happiness, right? Uh, like the rom-com, I think, is like the best example of like a story can only have a happy ending if two people who are so different in the beginning are kissing at the end of it, right? So what that does, it, first of all, it encourages us to see stories as beginning and ending with ourselves. Like when we're born, that's the first chapter. And when we die, that's the last chapter. And societally, what that does is it prevents us from thinking about future generations and it prevents us from, from honoring and taking seriously previous generations. So if you want to find some root cause that explains declining birth rates in the West, rising depression in the West, our inability to pull off grand infrastructure projects, the fact that we're not building world wonders anymore, the fact that, you know, as Elon Musk or whoever, who was it, Elon Musk or Peter Thiel said, you know, we were promised flying cars and instead what we got was 280 characters, right? <laughs> if you want to find one root cause to explain all of that, it's sort of the rise of of Athens and the decline of Jerusalem. If you want to know what I think is the greatest lesson that you can take from just interacting with and hopefully learning from the Orthodox Jewish community without having to become or feeling any reason to become Jewish, certainly Orthodox Jewish, yourself. In fact, be the best version of yourself. Don't be us. Be the best version of yourself. That's what we believe God wants from you. If there's a lesson to take, it's that. Think in terms of long stories. When you're born, that's not the first chapter. And when you die, that's not the last chapter. You are two to three paragraphs and you're lucky to be two to three paragraphs in the middle of one chapter. Of an encyclopedia. Of an encyclopedia, right. Of like this really long, like, you know, wheel of time level, you know, Robert Jordan, you know, Tolkien level epic. Then we can accomplish things that are so much grander than we're able to accomplish now. And maybe we won't see the fruits of it, but our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will. And much like we today sort of, I think, think very intuitively about standing on the shoulders of giants. Like in some way, I think like we believe that like George Washington and Frederick Douglass, we want to make them proud, right? In a weird way, right? Even immigrants, like my ancestors hadn't, couldn't have cared less about the Civil War when it was going on. But like I, in some way, kind of we as a part of the society, like want to make George Washington and Frederick Douglass proud. Like that's so weird. We had nothing to do with them when they were alive and they're dead, right? But because we feel that way, we should understand that our great-great-grandchildren, if we 
pull this off right will want to feel the same way about us. That's beautiful. That's another beautiful idea you're saying, Ari. I'll just say one sentence about that particular idea. Again, referencing something which I saw recently in something that Rabbi Sachs said. He's coming up a lot today. The difference between Athens and Jerusalem can often be seen also whether or not we celebrate the heroes or we celebrate the hero's words. Again, that's not a quote from Rabbi Sachs, but an idea which was implicit in what he said. We don't think about Moses as the person so much as what he taught us. He's Moses, our teacher. The reason Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob matter to us is not because of who they were, but of what they did, of their legacy, the accomplishments that they did and passed on. We care about what Abraham represents as a larger idea that we can take with us to this day. In that same way, when you're thinking about George Washington, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, it's not the person, the person was whoever he was, but the ideas that they espoused. When Thomas Jefferson said what he said, he had his problems in his personal life, I acknowledge. But his ideas, at least in some areas, were fantastic. And those ideas can live on. And that, what you were describing, is a covenantal society, a society that's based on a covenant that goes on and on because it's not based on a person. It's based on what the person did, the ideas that he produced that continued to live and will influence future generations. Amen. Absolutely beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, his podcast is called The Orthodox Conundrum. Everybody listen and subscribe. Scott, thank you so much for being here. This is such a blast. It's such an honor to be back with you, Ari. I have to tell you, Good Faith Effort is such a fantastic podcast. It's a real honor to be here. So thank you. This was the episode I was most nervous to do. It was uh, a lot of getting under the hood of this podcast and honestly of me personally and seeing how it all works or sometimes doesn't work. But I hope it was valuable to you all, and if you could take just one thing away from it, I'd hope it would be that the work of building community, engaging with the great stories that shape us, and doubling down on the mutual responsibilities that bind us is the way we'll emerge from the pandemic era into a much brighter and better future. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the pod, be awesome! Go into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts, Give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 